Welcome to the first episode of Life's Just Political. I'm your host, Chris Black. And I'm Matt Wilder. This week's episode addresses energy policy. To many, energy policy seems a bit difficult to understand. And while that may be true to some extent, it's our hope that through this show, we're able to simplify a few of the various intricacies through education and entertainment. We'll begin by providing a brief overview of the Biden administration's policy proposals, including their decision to re-enter the Paris Climate Agreement. Second, we'll talk about the ramifications of these policies on the economy and American society at large. And third, we'll discuss what's happened over the last week in the realm of politics and public policy. So strap in and get ready, because this is Life's Just Political. So we all knew that the Biden administration was going to be reactionary, to say the least. But on January 27th, we saw a press release come out from the White House that says President Biden takes executive actions to tackle the climate crisis at home and abroad, create jobs, and restore scientific integrity across the federal government. The Biden-Harris administration doubled down on climate change in their attempt to create jobs build infrastructure, and deliver environmental justice. They signed numerous executive orders that day. The first one, which established the Center for Climate Crisis and U.S. Foreign Policy and National Security Considerations, essentially arguing that the Paris Agreement's objectives, the United States will exercise its leadership to promote a significant increase in global ambition. It makes clear that both significant short-term global emission reductions and net zero global emissions by the mid-century or before are required to avoid setting the world on a dangerous, potentially catastrophic climate trajectory. And the order reaffirmed that the president will hold a Leaders' Climate Summit on Earth Day, April 22, 2021, and that the United States will reconvene the Major Economies Forum to underscore the administration's commitment that elevating climate and U.S. foreign policy is a very important thing. The president also created a special job for his friend John Kerry, the Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, which will have a seat on the National Security Council, and that it'll be a U.S. priority to press for enhanced climate ambition and integration of climate considerations on a wide range of international forums. And the order also kicked off the process for developing the U.S.'s nationally determined contribution under the Paris Agreement, as well as a climate finance plan. Now, to me, and this is just simply my opinion, it seems as though we're using an international standard on which to retool the entire American government. What are your thoughts on that, Matt? Well, first of all, I think that the it's fairly clear that the Biden administration is what, for good or ill, that's your opinion, but for good or ill, they have adopted the fairly radical Green New Deal type of progressive that carried them, if so to speak, uh, to the White House. I think that's fairly obvious. Uh, I like how you phrased that, Chris, about restructuring our government. No president 
in modern American history, dating back to World War II, has used so many executive orders in their first week, not even to mention the first month of his administration. Where were we at? 15 within the first week? Or was it a little bit, a little bit over? By the end, uh, sometime in early February, there was a, a several stories that came out. CNN tracks all of these. CNN has been keeping track. I think we're up to something like 42 now. Something like that. I don't know the precise number, but yeah, it was an incredibly high number of executive orders. And that goes that goes to your point that to, and by the way, a lot of these executive orders were climate driven. And so this is bypassing the legislature of the United States, which as far as I'm aware, still has the Advice and consent, at least in the United States Senate. Where's the Senate on this particular issue? Well, you have to look at the Paris Climate Agreement. You know, we always kind of knew that we were going to get back into this thing if a Democrat got elected. That's number one. But oh, number yeah. two, it really hurt Biden's pride when we left the Climate Agreement to begin with. It was one of the major feats Absolutely. of the Obama-Biden administration. And he, was, and he led the charge. Exactly. But, you know, this is the center point of the Biden administration's energy policy. And the Paris Agreement, for those that don't know, is a legally binding international treaty on climate change. Now, the key word in that is legally binding. It was adopted by 196 parties at the uh, in Paris on the 12th of December 2015 and was really entered into force on the 4th of November of 2016. Now, its goal is to limit global warming to well below 2, preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. Yes. And now the implementation of the Paris Agreement required economic and social transformation, again, a retooling of society, based on the best available science, they claim. And it works on a five-year cycle of increasingly ambitious climate action carried out by countries. Now, by 2020, countries were required to submit their plans for climate action, known as their NDCs, Nationally Determined Contributions. I brought that up kind of in the introduction. Now, the United States, on the other hand, we withdrew during the Trump administration. And whether you agree with the existence of global climate change or not, it was probably a very good thing that we did at the time. Um, Now, one of the things that the Paris Agreement does that really, I guess, irks me is that it reaffirms that developed countries should take the lead in providing financial assistance to countries that are less endowed and more vulnerable, while for the first time also encouraging voluntary contributions by other parties. Now, they argue that climate finance is needed for mitigation because large-scale investments are required to significantly reduce emissions. And they also argue that climate finance is equally important for adaptation as well as significant financial resources that are needed to adapt to the adverse effects and reduce the impacts of a changing climate. Now, in preparing for this show, last night you had a very interesting point on this. Do you mind to um, kind of explain, Matt, what you were thinking? Well, well... (laughs) You were t- really talking about these um, essentially funding other countries' attempts toward making um, oh. changes in climate change and then how developing countries, the impacts on those. Yeah, absolutely. So not to take from our good buddy Karl Marx, but when you read uh, 
to, to some degree the Communist Manifesto, but to a large degree Das Kapital, the, the, the great uh, destruction, if you will, that Marx laid out against the capitalist order. We can talk all day, and I'm sure that in one episode we will down and down the line talk about the uh, insanity of that particular argument, but there is a materialistic idea that Marx proposes, and it's the idea that to get to the goal of communism, you first have to pass through capitalism, socialism, and then finally communism. Well, development industrially speaking, is the same way. You can't go from farming today to a post-industrial society five years from now. It is a long, lengthy, miserable process that you have to go through to become an industrialized nation. And so by giving these countries finance, basically what we're saying is, hey, we're going to throw out a stick, we're going to want you to eat that stick using money so that your development can be off-put so that we don't put so much stuff in the atmosphere. And it's, I think it's horribly, and, I, and I, I don't want to use this term lightly because it's thrown around so much, I think it's inherently racist, to be perfectly honest with you, because who does it target? Sub-Saharan Africa. Well, at a time wherein the United States and, heck, even the UK to some extent, have cut back on their international contributions through their aid organizations, USAID, UK aid, whatever it may be, this seems like a way to circumvent that process, to once again keep the aid flowing to these countries that, for a lack of better words, have pitiful records of tracking how the money they receive are actually spent. And then you have to look at China, on the other hand, that has until 2030 to actually begin to meet some of these requirements under the Paris Climate Accord. Oh, yeah. It just seems ridiculous. Absolutely. And I know we're about to hit a break just Mm -hmm. real quick, but I do want to get one point before we hit that break. Number one, and I'm sure we'll get to this in the second part into more detail, but it is undeniably benefiting China at the expense of sub-Saharan Africa. That's undeniable. And... Also, when you, when, it, when you talk about aid, look at pharmaceutical companies and the reason they did not provide AIDS medications to these African countries. The reason why, and it's horrible to say, but the reason why is they didn't know where, the, they didn't know where it was going to end up, right? And the reason why that's the case is because these countries are industrializing. It's a brutal absolutely brutal process when you look at it historically and um i i think we're doing i think we're doing sub-saharan africa a huge disservice in this i would agree with that um just another point before we go to break about the paris climate agreement not all developing countries have significant capacities to deal with many of the challenges brought on by climate change i think we can all agree on that oh absolutely however you know the paris climate agreement really does place a lot of emphasis on this climate related capacity building for these developing countries and requests that all of the developed countries enhance their support for capacity building actions in developing countries this kind of seems a bit similar to the whole let's spread democracy type of idea only let's now spread values of climate change and of climate security it, it just 
it's just very, very unsettling to me. But uh, we'll think, get into that at a later uh, point. Yeah, I think that might be another episode. <laughs> All right. All right, so Chris, I'm going to go and I want to I want to follow the human impact here in America because we talked a lot about the the foreign implications, but most of our listeners are going to be American, and so I want to talk about how this, um, how the Paris Climate Agreement and its predecessor, the Kyoto Protocol, impacts up real Americans in their daily lives. Okay, so I want to go back in time to the Obama administration. They began the process of the, their war on coal, as Republicans have, have phrased this. And j- just to put, point this out, right, I am not implying that we do not need to begin the process of finding renewable and cleaner energy sources. I'm not saying that at all. I like to go outside and be able to breathe, right? I, 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 I prefer that, and I think you do too. But we also have to take into consideration these people that use these non-renewable energy sources as their way of life. And the first, when we look at the war on coal, the amount of poverty that coal areas in western Pennsylvania, the uh, nearly the entire state of western um, uh, West Virginia, uh, west uh, eastern Kentucky. Uh, parts of northeastern Tennessee, even. Uh, these are predominantly coal regions. There's nothing else in this area to make money off of. You, There's not uh, anything there. And so what the Obama administration did is they basically said, we've got to get rid of coal now because of the climate. So you're taking already poor people, already existing poor people, and now you've taken their only chance to put food on the table, making them either dependent upon the government or let them starve, right? And that's an important point. You know, you think about Appalachia, which, let's face it, there's a whole commission, the Appalachian Regional Commission, that deals with trying to bring Appalachia out of poverty, right? Yeah. And then... You think about that, there are two words that are interchangeable with Appalachia. Poverty or coal. They're interchangeable. Yeah. Those are the first two things that come to mind to, peop- to people from outside of the Appalachian region. This is this is a train wreck, yes. is what it is, it for, was a, for that region. It was a train wreck. And then what the Obama administration did is like, well, uh, this is already a... Pardon my French, but this is already a shithole. It won't matter because we've got to save the environment. Which is in contrast to Donald Trump's shithole countries comment. I guess rather than shithole countries, the Obama administration, now the Biden administration, are focused on shithole American regions. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then look at what has happened just in the few, just in the month that the Biden administration has been in power, you end the Keystone XL pipeline, which affects folks along the northern border. Oh my gosh! Yes, uh, there is. Um, there's heartbreaking video um, of this uh, gentleman. He worked on the Keystone XL pipeline. His name is Henry Davis. And he gives a two-minute emotional 
appeal. He was he went into work. He went into work and then was told the president essentially the president just ended your job. And to, for for me, like it's just heartbreaking. I'm pretty sure we'll put this on the website mm-hmm. uh, blackwilder.org. Um, but just to just to hear, I mean, here's a man who had been told during the pre, the Trump administration that you're going to have a job, your family is going to be secure for the next at least the next five years. And yeah, this was a temporary job as um, our new. Uh, press secretary, so love to put it that, oh, Mr. Davis had a temporary job. Temporary? Temporary was five years for Mr. Davis. I don't think that's temporary. Well, what percentage of the American workforce today are contractors? I would say a, a good at majority. Least 30, at uh, least 30% of the jobs in the workforce right now? Don't have the statistics from the Department of um, the uh, U.S. Bureau Labor, of Labor, but... but you have to think it's over a quarter. Yes. And are those temporary? Well, they are temporary jobs, but is that how we're going to start viewing all of those jobs as temporary and therefore expungeable? Yeah. And then, and then, so you have coal. By the way, Biden's not reversing that in the slightest. We all know that. Then on top of that, you have the Keystone XL pipeline. And then a region that's close to your heart, Chris, he made a moratorium, the, uh, Joe Biden made a moratorium on further exploring the Gulf Coast. Yes, you know, on that point, the American Petroleum Institute did some analysis showing that an extended drilling ban would impact the Gulf Coast the hardest, estimating 48,000 job losses in Louisiana alone by 2022. That's next year. The oil and gas industry supported more than 249,800 jobs and contributed more than $73 billion to Louisiana's economy in 2018. Now, looking at that last um, two Senate races ago, when Mary Landrieu was still in the Senate in Louisiana, she was chair of the Energy Committee. That was one of the major points that the Democrats used to keep Mary Landrieu in power. It didn't happen, but that was their argument, is that by keeping Mary as your chairman of the Energy Committee in the Senate, you keep these oil and gas energy jobs. Seems to me like a good old, good old case of retribution in a roundabout way. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, let's look at who's been hit here, Chris. Let's look at who is really hit. You have Western Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, Eastern Tennessee, okay? Oh, all those regions vote Republican. Then you have the state of Louisiana. Then you you have have the state of Louisiana. Oh, (laughs) Uh, another Republican place. And and then the Dakotas. Uh, Let me see. How long have those um, seven electoral votes gone to... Oh, my gosh, the last 40 years. And we don't even need to talk about the impacts of the winter storm on the state of Texas. Oh, yeah, that's another episode as well. So my, my point is this. Um, these are real human beings. And will they eventually be killed by climate change? I don't know. Their grandkids may be. But here's my, here's my proposal. If you're going to cut jobs in the energy sector... 
in the name of protecting the environment. Maybe, just maybe, you should have a green job ready to go already. But according to Jen Psaki, again, our new press secretary, when she was asked by a Fox News reporter just two weeks ago where the green jobs are that Biden promised during the debates, she considered a joke and mocked him for asking the question. Well, you know, you have to look at this. In the city of Charlotte, North Carolina, they're kind of leading the way on this whole um, climate change revolution. Their city council is, and the mayor there. Part of the Bloomberg philanthropy's effort to the mayor's challenge. And they're saying that because of the retooling of the city's infrastructure there and the things that they're doing, that there's going to be all these green jobs. So they're trying to create training institutions and programs for folks to assume these new green jobs. The issue therein is how many individuals right now in a city the size of Charlotte are prepared to stop what they're doing, to leave the workforce temporarily, to enter these training programs, to become trained for these new green jobs. It, it, it's just not practicable. And, and then, not only that, then you have the Biden administration's intent to ban fracking in the United States and the Chamber of Commerce turned around, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce turned around and said that their analysis of such a ban were imposed in 2021. By 2025, it would eliminate 19 million jobs and reduce the U.S. GDP by $7.1 trillion. Yes. And the impacts would be immediate and severe. And that in Texas alone, more than 3 million jobs would be lost. That means that tax revenue at the local, state, and federal levels would decline by a combined $1.9 trillion, which would then serve as a cut on critical sources of funding for schools, first responders, infrastructure, and other critical public services. Energy prices would also skyrocket under a, frack, a fracking ban, where natural gas prices would leap by 324%, causing household energy bills to more than quadruple. By 2025, motorists would pay twice as much as the pump, five-plus dollars a gallon. That's that's my point, and I know we're 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 right up next to the a, a break, and but I just want to take what you just said there. It's either a they have an agenda to bring America down a notch, and maybe that's the case. Maybe that's the case. It could be that they want to punish Republicans because all those areas that you just mentioned. Guess who's going to be like people where we live in eastern Tennessee, they can't afford $5 a gallon gas. They can't do it. And now maybe you can get, um, you know, a, a green car on the road, but those things right now, people in east Tennessee can't buy electric cars right now, right? And let me, let's, let's focus in on that Charlotte deal. You and I have traveled extensively to Charlotte. We've been there probably over the course of the last 10 years. We've been there probably five or six times together. That's a nice city. That's a city that is the new 
uh, financial capital of the New South, right? That is not, those training programs, that's not a town in West Virginia. That's not a parish in Louisiana, and that's not some farm in North Dakota. Those places can't get green training. Just something to point out there. Very good point. And um, just one more thing that uh, I want to add here. You know, under the Trump administration, the average household saw lower taxes, we saw record low unemployment, and we saw cheap energy that averaged increases of around $4,500 a year for families. Now, the cost due to these new policy-driven increases for electricity, heating, fuels, and gasoline under the Biden administration, families are projected to lose as much as $10,000 additionally a year by 2024. That's three years from now. That's setting us up for a new presidential election. Now, if the Democrats were so concerned about keeping the White House, making gains in the House, making gains in the Senate, it would seem to me that bombarding these states with new regulations and record job losses would kind of work against them, would it not? Unless it's their intent to try to blame all of this on the Republican Party, which may... That work. may be the case. It may, may the, work. That may work because here's what the only way that you can offset that $10,000. Holy shit, right? Again, where we live, people don't have that kind of money. The only way you can offset that. When the average median and household income for a lot of these counties and a lot of these parishes mm-hmm. in Louisiana, Eastern Tennessee, West Virginia, when the median household income in some of them is around $26,000 a year. Yeah. As unbelievable as that sounds it's in going, 2021. Yes, it's going to put them in abject poverty. Yes. Yes, it's going to put them in. So either either A, again, go back to my point, it's either there's a, something bigger at play, or two, they don't give a damn because those places are going to vote red anyway. It, it's, it's one way or the other, but I think we're ready for a break, Chris. Absolutely. So this is our uh, final segment, and this is one that we call the Weekly Roundup. And in this segment, what we're going to do is we're just going to go through a few uh, news stories from various sources across the world and kind of uh, tell you what's going on and maybe make some uh, comments along the way when necessary. Okay. So just an article that uh, popped up for me from Reuters. It's titled Perfect Trips. Venezuela ships jet fuel to Iran in exchange for gasoline, sources say. Venezuela is shipping jet fuel to Iran in return for vital gasoline imports for the South American nation as part of, as part of a swap deal agreed to by the two state-run oil firms, three people with knowledge of the matter, told Reuters. Iran has ramped up their assistance to Venezuela since last year as the United States tightened sanctions on both countries, hitting oil exports by state-run firms Petroleus de Venezuela and the National Iranian Oil Company. And if I butchered that Petroleus thing, I don't speak Spanish. But one thing that really strikes me with this particular article is the fact that now we're wanting to re-enter the Iran deal here in the United States. Let's empower Iran with more um, opportunity, if you will, to um, get back onto the global scale. When you're working 
with countries such as Venezuela, when you're working with countries such as Bolivia, these rogue regimes, if you will, in the West, what that tells me is that you have very little interest in actually doing the right thing when it comes to conducting yourself properly on the global scale. And we've known that Iran's had an issue with this for quite some time. So, uh, just really quickly, I want the if anyone out there has more knowledge of fuel than Chris and I do, uh, send us an email on uh blackwilder.org you can find our emails there um, they're exchanging jet fuel jet fuel for gasoline yes isn't in, in the jet fuel seems a little more complicated than gasoline Why, I, I don't understand Chris the world's crazy, but continue. Um, second thing I've got, just a few points, are obviously the junta that's taking place in Myanmar. That's going to be a major issue if we don't um, start uh, really reasserting ourselves in the region, the United States, from a diplomatic standpoint. What we have seen over the past few years, and of course you can attribute a little bit of this to the Trump administration, is that we um, have pretty much focused on the Korea's and China as our major points of um, assertion within um, Southeast Asia. But it's very important that we uh, continue to keep an eye on the Myanmar situation. And then finally, um, just the last article that I have here, Bringing More Diversity to U.S. Diplomacy by Robert McMahon on the um, Council of Foreign Relations website. Uh, he cites that President Biden has vowed to diversify the top ranks of government agencies the small and shrinking number of senior black diplomats in particular could undermine U.S. foreign policy goals. Now, this is just me, only my opinion. I, uh, I'm a mixed individual myself, studied foreign policy or national relations for quite some time. I frankly don't understand the necessity to fill key government posts, particularly in the realm of diplomacy, based on diversity and diversity alone. And it seems as though the Biden administration is making this a top um, a top priority, if you will. Of course, there was a trend toward more black diplomats, which was, they argued, reversed by Trump. But uh, I think that we ought to start uh, looking at people based on their qualifications and not necessarily based on race. What do you have, Matt? Um, well, that story that you just shared there alone is just mind-boggling. I, I feel like, uh, I, I guarantee you there will be no diversity of thought in the, <laughs> uh, there'll be no diversity of thought in the diplomatic, uh, in the State Department, but, uh, that's neither here nor there. Um, I just wanted to, like, quickly run through some, uh, facts that I've discovered over the course of time, uh, concerning, um, COVID numbers, uh, which is shocking. Uh, so, uh, cold fact number one, uh, Donald Trump was president in the United States when uh, the first American died of COVID on February 6, uh, 2020, correct? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, cold fact two, um, Joseph R. Biden Jr. became president of the United States on January 20th, 2021, correct? That's right. Okay. Um, at the time uh, of this publication, uh, of this uh, uh, podcast, uh, according to the CDC, the United States has a death toll due to COVID at 505,235 people. I, mean, I think 
everyone, regardless of party, agrees like mm-hmm. that's horrifying, right? That's that's horrible. Okay. Uh, cold fact number four: um, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the L.A. Times, the USA Today, uh, CNN, MSNBC, basically all of our media, uh, the whole damn press corps, the whole damn press corps uh, have has said that President Trump. And his neglectful actions made him personally responsible for all of these deaths. Is that correct? They pretty much made that argument. Okay. I can pull up and... And if it it wasn't President Trump, it was surely the Republican Party. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, Republicans killed all those people. Okay. Uh, So, now, uh, we have to take into consideration, though, that the moment that Trump left, a very competent president came in and... A new era dawned, correct? That was the argument. Okay, so that means that Trump can only be responsible for the deaths from February 6th, 2020, to January 20th, when he very very quietly um, skedaddled out of D.C. and headed back to Florida. Okay, so you follow me so far? Okay, so that means that if we do the arithmetic, the CDC told us that on January 20th, there were 384 1,359 American deaths. Now, according to the media, Chris, every single one of those is Trump's fault. Right? Okay. So, that means that from February 6th to Biden's inauguration, that's 349 days. When you average that out, that's 1,102 people that Donald Trump killed each day. Under their rhetoric. Under their rhetoric. Now, you, it becomes even more grim of the past regime, regime's uh, uh, life under the Trump administration when you consider that most of those were concentrated in April and May, and then again in November and December after the holidays, right? So that's not bad. Okay, so um, when you take the fact that Joe Biden, again, who came in on the 20th till today, that's 120,000 people uh, that have died in that month that Biden has been in office, right? I mean, that just makes sense. So when you do the 33 days that Joe Biden was president and those numbers, based off the media, Biden has killed 3,663 people every day since he's been in office. And in fact, according to the Washington Post, an article they just released a couple days ago, February 2021 is the deadliest month since the pandemic began. So my question that I kind of want to leave with is, is the president responsible for protecting us during a pandemic? Or is Joe Biden three times deadlier than President Trump? Some I want you to think about. And that's all I have today, Chris. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Life's Just Political. We hope that you've enjoyed it and that you've learned a little something new along the way. Next week, we're continuing our discussion of climate change equation and looking into the Middle Eastern variable. Be sure to follow us on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast, And be sure to leave us a review while you're at it. Links to the articles and resources cited in today's show can be found at www.blackwilder.org forward slash blog. 
Again, we're Chris Black and Matt Wilder, and thanks for listening. Life's Just Political is a production of Black and Wilder Media.